The scripture reading for Dr. Hunter's message is from the 6th chapter of Romans, verses 16 through 23. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now, here's Dr. Hunter. Scriptures to the second chapter of Genesis. Let me review for you where we've been. And let me let you know where we are living upside down. And how to get it back right side up. I want to talk to you tonight about two trees of death. Not one, but two. And how the first tree didn't look like death, but it really was. And how the second tree fully is death, but it's really not. You remember some weeks ago that I preached about the only limitation that God originally gave on this earth. There was only one. In the 16th verse... It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And there began a process in the man and the woman's thinking about what freedom was and about what fulfillment was. And they began to think, with the help of the servant or the serpent, that freedom was being limitless. It was taking the only limit they had and cutting themselves off from that freedom. The serpent said in their mind, you won't die. And he said, you know what? If you eat, if you exceed that limit, then not only will you not die, but your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. And so it says in Genesis 3, 17, or Genesis 3, chapter 6, verse 6, when a woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so, were we supposed to let the kids go tonight? And I just noticed a kid walking out. Any kids that want to go, you can go. And so, they associated freedom with limitlessness. But what really happened was that there was a 
a terrible, horrible crash that they were not aware of for a while because of the flotation of their lives in the void. It was not unlike a kite whose height and flight comes from having a single string attached to reality. That is what gives it its height. But when you snip that string so that it can have ultimate freedom, it is given to every wind and, and wane of doctrine, and it floats for a while before it crashes. I said some weeks ago that the man and the woman did die that day. That they were very much like a chicken with its head cut off. The moment the head was separated from the body, they were dead. But yet there were some reflexes left in the body. And to all appearances, it looked like there was still life there. Because there was activity there. And it took a while for the body to catch up with the fullness of death. And that's how we work. That's how we live in this world. Spiritually, we're dead. It looks like we're alive, doesn't it? Because we're running around. There's all kinds of activity. But we've been separated from our head. And so before we come to Christ, we operate in death. And do you know one of the, the ways that we pretend that we're not really dead, we're just injured? That there is some correction to this, to this situation in which we find ourselves. That there's a way that you can actually get better in this world either by learning or by getting support or by finding out, you know, something to do that's worthwhile, that there's actually a way to recover from this death. One of the, one of the ways that, that we think of that is to create a God where we don't have to die, but he can just make us better from where we are. Now, let me tell you before I go on about the second tree of death. This tree of death had the second Adam on it. Just as we were all in the first Adam, so too some of us need to be in the second Adam. The first Adam was totally free and went to a tree that he thought was going to give him life. The second Adam was bound, literally, the scriptures say. He allowed himself to be bound and went to a tree that he knew would give him death, even though eventually it gave him greater life. The first Adam went for himself. He was all alone in his desires. The second Adam went for all of us. But just as surely, listen to this, just as surely as that it was required for Christ to die to give us new life, so too it is required for us to die before we can ever be born again. There is no way to get better from where we are. There is no way to make life right from where we are. That is the absolute totality of the devastation of sin. Now, we try all kinds of ways to get out of that death, of saying, Lord, it's, I'm, I'm going to be crucified with you. I'm ending my life right here. Now, from now on, it's you. We try all kinds of ways to get out of that. And one of those is to make a God where we won't have to do that. See? We, in this culture, just like Vernon read, want a God that will prosper us from where we are. 
and get us better from where we are and make us feel better from where we are. See? There's an old French joke about... Um, now, the French have a different sense of humor than we do, so you won't laugh at this, but it makes the point. About a robber who runs out of a bank and this French police force is chasing him and they chase him into this building, this huge building, with all these exits. And they have a brief meeting right outside the building. And they are quick to recognize that they don't have enough policemen to surround that building and guard all those exits. And so they choose another building nearby, smaller one, that they do have enough men to surround, and they go surround that one. We do theology just like that. We say, you know what? God's too big. This thing's too big for me. I can't handle this, and so therefore, I'm going to go build a theology that I can handle. The problem is, he ain't in the building. You got the wrong building. The problem is that God cannot be pared down to our understanding. And practically every cult, Jehovah's Witnesses included, make the mistake of saying, I am going to shape God in what I can understand. I don't understand the Trinity. And therefore, it must not be reality. I will only have what I can understand of God. I will only have what I need of God. The problem is that there is an objective reality no matter what you need. And there is a God who is God no matter what you understand. We keep wanting to reshape God. And let me tell you, one of the ways we do that, I, I have a, my, my friend here, William, gave me a book because he knows this kind of stuff ticks me off. And he, and he just loves to shuffle it to me. And so he gave me a book about the kind of God we try to build in this society, the, the kind of God of trappings, the kind of God that will give us and prosper us. And this book is entitled, It Works. See, that's one of the things we love about building a God. We want a God that will work, see? None of this stuff that we can't understand or, or if we can't... Uh, we want something that will improve our lives and so God has to serve us. Well, this is, the, this is what this book says right here. It works. And it says, the subtitle is, If you know what you want, you can have it. Now, are you curious about this? Huh? Let me read you this book, what this book says. This is the famous little red book that makes your dreams come true, it says. Now, listen to this. Let me show you how this works here. It says you have within you a mighty power, anxious and willing to serve you, capable of giving you that which you earnestly desire. Are you excited now? The power is described by, and they give this guy's name, who is a Ph.D. and an LLD, very impressive, who was the author of the Law of Psychic Phenomena, which tells you a little bit about his theology right there, as your subjective mind. Other learned writers use different names and terms, but all agree that it, he's talking about that power within you, is omnipotent. Therefore, I call this power Emmanuel, God in us. They just have used the biblical term for Jesus Christ. And so Christians say, oh, Emmanuel, that must be the Christian religion. Now they go on. These are the three positive rules of accomplishment. Would you like to read? I'll, I'll just you know, read these for you so that you know that you can have anything you want and how to get it. See, here's how to get it right here. Search no further. Make, you make a list out of whatever you want in life. Be specific now. You've got to be specific. Make a list out. And then it says, read the list of what you want three times each day. Morning, noon, and night. Okay? Second, second rule. 
think of what you want as often as possible. Wouldn't you love to hang around with a person like this? What are you doing? Thinking about what I want. Thinking about what I want. Number three, don't talk to anyone about your plan. (laughs) Except to the great power. You know, the great power is capitalized, of course. The great power within you, which will unfold to your objective mind the method of accomplishment. Oh, gosh. It says... The omnipotent power within you, capitalized, within you, does not enter into any any controversial argument. In other words, don't think too much about it. Don't try and reason this thing out. But it says in italics, it is willing and waiting to serve you when you are ready. Wouldn't you love to have a God like this? Oh, I'm just your beck and... This is better than a genie in a bottle! Yeah, you only get three witches with a genie in a bottle. This guy is a... Boy, he's ready. Now it says, there is a law which actually works at all times when you are in tune with it. Watch out for those in tune with words. It says, you can remain as you are or have anything you want. And then on the back, it has all these endorsements. I love this one. It works for me. How many people? It works for me and for others to whom I send it. The pastor of my church often quotes it works in his sermons. How do you like that one? He too is sold on it. Listen, you know how hard we try to build a God that will suit us and try to build the universe around ourselves. But you know what? There's an objective reality that is irrespective of us and our persons. God has an existence well outside of what we would shape him to be. And so therefore, in order to love God, listen to this, you have to love him accurately. You have to come to know who he really is, not who you want him to be. It has some analogy to a human relationship. Have you ever loved someone and you thought you know who they were? And after getting closer to them, they were not the person you thought they were. And so what happened to the relationship? It had some real rocky times, didn't it? And you found out that you weren't loving them at all. You were loving who you hoped they were. The difference between love and infatuation is love is accurate. Love knows what it has. And they are loving someone else as they are. Infatuation just has a dream. And reality has very little to do with it, just the needs that are being answered. Listen, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Your job before you love God is to know who He is. To really know who He is. Not who you hope He is. Not who you need Him to be. But who He is. That's your job. And that's why I am so frustrated with bad theology. And with a mindset of a culture that will shape God like they want Him. Thank you very much. Now, I made some of you guys mad last week. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I'm going back over this territory is I could not believe some of the stuff I heard last week after I preached what I did. 
Now, usually it's pretty good because the Holy Spirit takes it and wipes out my mistakes and gives you just exactly what you need. But I came out of a message last week and talked with at least a half a dozen people who, after I had said, you must be crucified with Christ, who, after I had said, you totally die, and Christ becomes your identity, said to me, oh yeah, I've, I've joined God in my life. I've invited God into my life. And I followed it up. What do you mean you invited God? No, he's my partner. He's my bud. Well, he's not your partner. He's not your bud. If you have the real God, you don't exist anymore. Jesus is not an additive. Christ is a replacement. I have been crucified with Christ, the Bible says. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you've got a bud, you've got someone you've created, a false god, an idol, and your faith is in vain because you are not worshiping the real God. The cost of having Jesus in your life is not a partial bargain. It is not an incremental deal. Holiness is incremental. Sanctification is incremental. But being saved, you either saved or you ain't saved. It is either Christ in you and that's it. Or you have said, well, God, if you just come in my life, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this part. And if you do good with this part, I'll give you this part too. And if you do good with that part, I'll give you this part too. Or you've said, if you save me from this, man, I'll just let you have practically anything. Mm-mm. No, you don't get a little bit saved any more than you don't get a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And you need to know which you are. Okay? You need to know that so that you can have confidence and assurance from here on out. And that requires good theology. Now listen, last week I said to you, I made a comment about, about the recovery groups. All right? Some of you said, oh, I know you don't like recovery groups. That's not what I said. I don't have anything against As a matter of fact, I think recovery groups are necessary for a lot of people and helpful for a lot of people. Look, if you've got an infection in your body, a physical infection. The first place you ought to go is to God. You thought I was going to say the doctor, didn't you? No. To God. You ought to ask him for healing. Say, God, heal this. Wait for a time, see if he's going to do it. If he's not going to heal you immediately and miraculously, then you go to a doctor. Say, well, you know, God must be going to be heal me a different way. He heals through doctors. Luke was a physician. He didn't stop being a physician when he became a Christian. See? So he uses doctors. So you need to go to a doctor to heal a physical infection if God doesn't do it right off the bat for you. If you have a pernicious pattern in your life, which most of us have. Most of us have come out of this famous D word, dysfunction. And most of us have a pattern in our life. The first person you ought to go to is God. Say, God, get this out of my life. I can't operate well. I can't love well. I can't be intimate well. Get this out of my life. If he doesn't take it out, then you may need to go to a counselor or you may need to go to a recovery group. See? That's okay. That's as clinically necessary as sometimes going to a physical doctor. It's okay. 
But it's not where you get your theology from. You don't go to a doctor and say, teach me about God. You don't go to a recovery group and say, teach me about God. Because that's not their business. Their business is to help you as an individual read reality as they see it in your life. It's not to teach you about God. And you ought not to get stinky theology from anybody. If somebody's being obnoxious in your group about Jesus, say, you're being obnoxious about Jesus. Jesus isn't obnoxious. You're obnoxious. But don't say, leave Jesus at the door. That's bad theology. It's impossible. See? Just confront the person as they are and say, quit being obnoxious. That's not our business here. We're on, we're on another track here. See? Now, this is important. It's so important because accurate theology is necessary for intimacy with God. You can't have intimacy without accuracy. You can't. You've got to learn good, solid theological concepts to know who God is. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about atonement. There are not, what did Jesus do on the cross for us? Do you, do you think you know what he did on the cross for us? Now, atonement is, it, it, it comes from two words, at one. <laughs> at one moment. How did Jesus make a difference in our life because he hung on the cross? There are nine different theories. Let me put them in three separate categories. And this is going to show you why we need to know exactly what God is trying to communicate with us through Scripture. By the way, this is the only accurate source for who God is. Opinions don't count. Anytime you hear somebody say, well, I think God is, doesn't count. If it's in here, it counts. Now, let's go from there. I'm talking to you strong tonight, aren't I? You need it. Okay. Listen, there are, three, there are three assumptions of what Jesus did for us on the cross. B.B. Warfield said, People assume that Christ's activity on the cross was correspondent with the basic need of human life. So some believe that the basic need of human life is to get educated, to get smarter. Because the basic problem with human life is ignorance. Um, Socrates said that. Um, lots of people said that. Okay, so they'll, they'll say... Uh, okay, never mind. Then there's another one. There's another I'm going to get back to that. There's another one. They say, well, no, the basic problem with human life is miserable. People are miserable. So therefore, God's basic function is to relieve our misery, to give us relief. And there's a third group that says the basic problem with human life is that they're dead in sin. And they need to be brought alive to God. Now, this group says, I'll tell you what Jesus did on the cross, and there's a little bit of truth in each one of these, and of course we're right back, we're down at the end there, in case you're wondering where we are. We're down at that other end. I want to give you a little foreknowledge about this. These people, yeah, no problem. These people, these people say, well, I'll tell you what happened on the cross. God stuck Jesus up there to give us a wonderful example of what love really is, and how sacrificial Jesus Christ was. Well, certainly that happened. I mean, it tears my heart out that an innocent person, that God in the flesh had to die for my sins. And it does make me want to follow Him. But if that was the only reason, if that was the only reason God stuck Jesus on the cross, then it was a waste of time. Because half the people look at the cross and they go, too bad, appreciate it. But that doesn't inspire me to do anything. 
And if God could not think of any other way to inspire us to righteousness than to have his son killed, he wasn't thinking it clear through, was he? So therefore, that could not have been God's reason for putting him on the cross. Secondly, there's a group that thinks, I'll tell you why he put Jesus on the cross. It was to defeat the evil one, because he's the one that makes us miserable. And so therefore, on the cross, once and for all, God defeated Satan. Well, that certainly did happen. And certainly, Satan has no illusions about the short leash he's on. But you know what? If that, again, was the reason, if Satan is almost as strong as God, and if there was some sort of cosmic war going on, then God is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. He's just battling a near equal. But if you look in Scripture, that's simply not true. Satan had to ask permission from God even to get to Job. Satan, in the long run, is simply a tool for God. Because God uses what Satan does to build his plan in this world. There's no closeness of power there. Satan's not all that strong. He attacks. He causes misery. He's not all that. God did not have to sacrifice his son to defeat Satan. Let me tell you why God sacrificed Jesus Christ. Why Jesus sacrificed his own life. It was because there is a system of justice in this world. God thought this world out long beforehand. And there is a system of justice that comes out of the nature of the justice of God. And you can't mess with it. It either is there or it's not. And it's there. And it doesn't make exceptions. God doesn't wink at sin and say, Oh, okay, never mind. You, it's like gravity. You can feel anything you want about gravity. You can say, oh, I don't believe in gravity. You can say, oh, gravity is not a warm concept to me. I really need a warm concept. You can think anything you want, but don't step off a 13th story building, please. Because there's no exceptions. You're going to go down. Doesn't matter what you think. Well, God's justice is just like that. There is an objective reality in this world, and one of those objective realities is God's justice. And God's justice says, if you sin, you've got to pay. There's consequences. There's consequences. And so here we are, all of us, inheriting death, walking around dead people. We have sinned. God says, you've got to pay. Now, I know people who say, okay, I'll just pay. I don't want no Jesus paying for my sins. I'm the one committed. I'm going to pay. What are you going to pay with? You already owe God everything in your... What are you going to pay with? The only thing you've got left to pay with is an eternity in hell, which is exactly what you're going to be paying if you keep talking like that. We have to have someone to answer that necessity of justice. And Jesus is the one. It was necessary for him to die on the cross. He didn't have sin in his life. He didn't owe God his life. He was God. And so therefore... He's the one. You know, we just sang Rock of Ages. It says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. The Bible says that the law was never vanquished. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Romans chapter 3 says, The law is still in effect. See? It never wavered. When your parents, listen, when your parents are raising your kids, and you let them whine and finagle out of stuff, You've laid the rules down. They are clear. They are good rules. 
And you let their kids get out, and you go, oh, never mind. You know what you're doing? You're building hell into those kids. You are building disorder and chaos into those kids, and they don't want that. They want parents who have thought things out ahead of time, and it makes sense, and so therefore they abide in an orderly universe. Well, God isn't like that. God has thought things out ahead of time. And he says, this is how it is, and there has to be payment. And so Christ is the payment. Now, how can Christ be your payment? Only if you become at one with him. And you can't become at one by being his buddy and his partner. There isn't enough room in the universe for partners with God. God, remember those old cowboy movies when somebody come into town and say, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Well, you know what? Neither is being God. You don't participate in your own salvation. You accept it. It's by grace. What does the Bible mean in Colossians 2.20 when it says, if you have died with Christ? What does the Bible mean when it says in Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed? It means somebody's died, and it's us. I used to have a college professor. And I took every course. I loved this guy. I took every course he offered. He was a history professor. And he used to stand up at the beginning of the course, and he'd say, the only excuse you have for missing this class is if there has been a death in your family, that death being your own. <laughs> well, you know what? The only ticket you have into this course is if there's been a death in your family, that death being your own. There aren't any marginal bargains with God. You either die to self or you don't have it. It couldn't be plainer than that. And you know perfectly well what I mean by that. Don't say, well, what do you mean by that? You know perfectly well what I mean by it. It means you go to God and you say, God... I want you wall to wall to live in my heart. Wall to wall, Holy Ghost, that's what I want. And I am going to die and give you my life completely. No more bargains. None of this, I'm a basically good person stuff. None of this, well, get me out of this jam stuff. No, you've got it all. You only have to do it once. Just one time. Remember last week I said that perfect indicative passive verb, that perfect is something that happens once and then it's good forever. Now, I want to ask you something. Have you made that transaction on that basis? On who God is and how he set up the universe? Because, again, if you haven't, if you accepted Christ on any other basis, you accepted your own version of Christ and not who Christ really is. And I want to give you a chance tonight to reverse that. Let me tell you, in closing, the, the words of an old hymn. Now, I realize I didn't stick to the text, but I never do. Words of an old hymn. I love this hymn. It was written by George Matheson back in the last century. It says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And the last verse I love even more. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly 
from thee. I lay in dust life's glory, dead. And from the ground there blossoms red. Life in endless glee. Pray with me. God, thank you for not being subject to our emotional tantrums. Thank you that we don't have to come out of fully functioning families before we can accept on an objective level what you've done for us. That you do not limit your kingdom to people who have learned how to love in a healthy way. But to all of us you come on the same basis. And to those who you call, we can hear you saying, you decide. If you can understand this call, you decide to lay your life down for me. Thank you that you said, he who would save his life will lose it. But he who would lose his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. Until we do that, Lord, we're living life upside down. And we're frustrated. And the meaning of limitlessness simply means void. Bring us into your kingdom through the only limit that you give us. And that's the limit of Jesus Christ. And help us so to build that connection that we can go as high as you meant us to go or as low as you meant us to be because it's not our life anymore. It's yours. Amen.